There's something about the morning where you can connect with your purpose, your muse, your your higher self, if you will. It seems to me much easier to connect with those parts of ourselves before the day has got a hold of me and I have all of that energetic residue of the tasks left unfinished or the little argument or the guy that cut me off on the way to work or whatever it was. Morning. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking about morning routines. We are talking about how to build an actionable, useful, realistic morning routine that can take you anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes, but will set you up for the most success imaginable. So you can win the morning, therefore win the day, therefore win at life and generate tons of momentum and build healthy habits along the way. And then we have a lovely chat today with Cassandra, our one and only caller, but we go deep all about familial hypercholesterolemia and LP little a and blood numbers and hear about her journey bouncing around from diet to diet, landing on animal base, but some concerns with those numbers and how we should move forward and mitigate those concerns so we can get radically healthy. This one's a fun one. Let's learn all about your morning routine. Let's dive in. Morning. I'm giving you an extra long drawn out morning today because that's what we are talking all about. The morning routine, more specifically how to master your mornings so you can build an enormous amount of momentum early in the day, carry that into the day with you, win the morning so that you win the day, so that you start just winning at life. So good morning, top of the morning to you. Good day, mate, guten tag. What else have we got? We don't know. We're saying good morning in all the language to our huge international fan base. Let's dive in, shall we? So the caveat here is that actually a good morning routine kind of starts with the night before and setting yourself up for success. So let's reverse that a little bit and talk about the nighttime for just a minute to make sure that when we can ease into our morning routine, we can come in all fresh eyed and ready to go because I get up personally quite early. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see hashtag sunrise club. I've been doing this for man, five years or so where I get up wherever I am in the world, where if I'm traveling or whatever, I adjust to the local time zone, I get up around sunrise and I do this and I'll explain why I do this in a moment. But that means that you have to get up early. And people ask me a lot of time, man, how do you just get up so early all the time? And my answer is the same, always. That getting up early is not hard. Getting to bed on time is what is hard. If you get to bed at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. at night, then realistically, you can get seven to eight hours of sleep and make it pretty much anywhere in the world for sunrise. But that means you've got to get your butt in bed at 9 or 10 p.m. at night. And usually the night owls will come out and the night owls arguably might be more productive at night, but usually that's just a coverall for, oh, I'm a night owl means I scroll TikTok for four hours in bed and I can't sleep. And that's how I justify that habit because usually... Well, pretty much always, we should be sleeping at well into our sleep by midnight. The reason it's called midnight is because it's the middle of the night and we have a bunch of humans going to bed at midnight and then wondering why they feel kind of groggy the next day and then coming up with all these kinds of excuses about being a night owl and just enjoying that time. So hope to pass through some of that information. But the reminder above all else here is not everybody needs to get up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. and not everybody needs to do Sunrise Club. But I would suggest that you try it. And if you are going to try it, that might need some work in the evenings to get to bed on time. And that means being mindful about some of those behaviors, right? 
Let's stop eating at least two hours, ideally three hours before bed. Let's not have a huge meal that's going to have us digesting food as we're trying to ease into that rest and digest parasympathetic mode. Let's think about kind of cutting the screens and the artificial lights down at least an hour before bed, but ideally a little bit more. Look, if you want to find balance here and something you do to enjoy your day is to Netflix and chill, then get some blue blocking glasses. And that's a way you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, if you will. But these behaviors are going to be very important. I would also suggest other little pro tips, speaking from experience. If you are staying hydrated, which you should be, don't be guzzling water right before you go to bed and making sure that you're going to wake up two times in the night to pee. So think about these things, cutting food out three hours before, cutting water out two hours before, cutting screens out one hour before. And now we just created a nice little three, two, one framework where you can hopefully now in that hour before bed where you're no longer blasting yourself with the artificial blue light or watching a horror sci-fi documentary on Netflix that's stressing you out, that maybe you are reading a book or maybe you're doing some light stretching, or maybe you're doing a meditation, or maybe you are playing some music, or maybe you're connecting with a loved one, or maybe you are like turning all the lights off, lighting a few candles and like being all romantic, and that's wonderful. And that would be a very cool evening routine, which will facilitate the morning routine, which brings us to the core talking point of today, which is that, just that. How do we start our mornings with a lot of intentionality and set ourselves up for the most success? So now we've got that taken care of. We'll get into bed on time. Now we're up nice and early. I like to try and simplify this as much as we can because there's a lot to cover here, but I like to look at it through almost four pillars or a four-step framework, if you will. And those pillars are, in no particular order, hydration, light, stillness, and movement. And I think if you can get all four of these, and I'll break it down in a way that I think anybody can get all four of these in as little that's 15 minutes, maybe even 10 minutes. So you really have no excuse. But if you get all four of these, I guarantee you have won the morning. And I also guarantee that if you win the morning, you are much more likely to win the day. And in the game of life, it's just a series of trying to win more days than you lose, right? We're just playing this long ass season of hopefully 100 years of winning more days than we lose. And the best way to do that is to set yourself up for success by starting the day very intentionally and coming in with some good momentum. And look, Sometimes life throws us a curveball, as it does, and maybe the rest of your day kind of crumbles. But even if it does, you can always look back then to your morning and say, at least I did that. At least I still got up early. I did my hydration, my stillness, my movement. I did those pillars, right? Because that's going to be something that you can always look back on or build from. So, Let's start looking at these pillars individually, discussing why I deem these as important fundamental pillars to a good morning routine and some ideas for you. So let's start with hydration. Again, the caveat here is that these aren't necessarily coming out in the order of importance. These are coming out usually in the order that I structure them because I've been doing this for a long time and I think it's the easiest way to kind of tackle it and they're all important. So hydration, okay, number one, you know I love a cheesy line, hydrate before you caffeinate. Too many people are waking up far too tired and groggy, probably for reasons we just mentioned, staying up too late, not, not restful sleeping, not a cold dark room, all of that fun stuff. So they're very foggy, they're very groggy, and they go immediately for the coffee, which actually is kind of foolish because we know that coffee, caffeine in particular, is very similar to that structure called adenosine. 
And when you wake up and you're foggy, what you've still got is this adenosine tap on, if you will. And there's still a fuzziness and you're trying to shake it off by having the caffeine come in and remove the felt sense of tiredness, which it does very well. Coffee doesn't give you energy. It removes the felt sense of tiredness. But the problem with doing it too early before you've done all of this good morning routine stuff is that adenosine system isn't really active in the way that you want it to be active for probably about the first hour of the day maybe even the first 90 minutes of the day. So your caffeine habit that you immediately go for when you wake up is actually just setting you up for greater crashes into the day and through the day and putting you on a roller coaster of intense up and down spikes and dependency upon these substances. So with hydration, always remember that I want to be in your head that at the very least, you should be hydrating before you caffeinate. And hydration is much more than water. So Water's important, it's obviously a very big piece of this, but a lot of people sleep and lose moisture when they sleep because a lot of our breathing patterns aren't very efficient. So here's a, a nice little bonus, mouth tape. I am traveling to Austin to do the podcast right now. The one thing that I always have with me is a little roll of, uh, I think they call it zinc oxide tape, and I tape my mouth shut at night. Some people get really freaked out by that, but if you're open to trying it, this make sure that I nose breathe the entire night instead of and that is where we'd lose a lot of moisture and that is where we wouldn't sleep really deeply. We wouldn't be getting into those deep cycles of REM and all of that fun stuff. So as a caveat, you have lost a lot of moisture in your sleep. Even if you are a beautiful nose breather like myself, you've still lost some weight, you've lost some moisture. That's why if you weigh yourself first thing in the morning, you'll often see that you can be three to four pounds lighter than at the end of the day. It's a lot of moisture and liquids lost. So we must replace those. So we are hydrating ideally with some form of electrolytes too, right? So we've got the big dog, sodium. Sodium seems to be the electrolyte that regulates the other electrolytes, kind of the gatekeeper, if you will. When sodium levels get low, by the way, sodium is salt. When that gets low, we'll start to see issues with potassium balance. We'll start to see issues with magnesium balance. So at the very least, make yourself a little morning mineral cocktail of water with some good quality salt in it, something like a, a Maldon sea salt flake. If you really fancy, a Celtic sea salt is really good, a micronutrient rich, a Redmond real salt is very good, but some kind of sodium is gonna be very helpful. Um, you could get a little bit of a hit of potassium maybe from the squeeze of a lime or a lemon. Uh, magnesium's a little harder to come by, but hopefully we can saturate our tissues throughout the day. Or we can actually go to a dedicated supplement, um, something like an element, a drink LMNT. Um, who else makes them? Redmond Real Salt has an electrolyte supplement right now. I know for some people, they get a little bit, you know, there's, there's some artificial sweetener in there in terms of stevia. But for me personally, with the amount that I sweat and the importance and focus on electrolytes, I personally like them very much. So I come down in the morning. And here's my trusty water bottle, which I've had a very good relationship and long relationship with for many years. And this is sitting on the kitchen counter. And it is 32 ounces, I think. So when I wake up in the morning, that's almost full. It's got electrolytes in it. And I take a, a big old glug of that. Now, ideally, if you looked at the optimal way to do it, big, massive gulps are less ideal than uh, a lot more consistent sipping. But let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good here. Done is better than perfect. So for me, it's just much easier to get, you know, at least half of that down or sometimes even the whole thing down. Like within the first couple of minutes of waking, I can sometimes be 32 ounces ahead with my hydration and get a good hit of sodium, magnesium and potassium from an electrolyte supplement. So I've already set myself up for success in that way. And just speaking to hydration generally, 
there are numerous formulas and there's some differing opinions here you know some people just you know drink when you're you know drink when you're thirsty i think um actually i i truly do believe that if you're thirsty you've kind of waited too late and you should be more proactive with hydration than reactive so a basic formula that i i like to follow is half your body weight in ounces of water so i am on any given day 185 190 something like that so i'll just round up and call myself 200 to make the maths easy that means i'm shooting for about 100 ounces of water and that means that if that is 32 ounces, that means that I need about three of those because that's going to get me close to that number. So don't need to make the math super complicated. But as a general rule of thumb, that hydration is big. And that means if I can get one of those done in the morning, then maybe I get one of those done lunch to afternoon window and get one of those done before I wrap up dinner. And I've got my hydration filled. So hydration is replenishing, setting yourself up for success with hydration uh, in, in the form of water, but also in the form of those minerals and electrolytes. And again, hydrate before you caffeinate. I see you all just going immediately for the cup of coffee and you're not doing yourself any favors. Okay, so that's hydration box stuff. Next up is light. So like I said, I wake up in the morning, I chug my water, and then for me, I'm immediately going outside. Uh, we'll have some nuance here because what happens if you're up before the sun? So we'll talk about that. But let's just say you are waking up right around when the sun is rising or a little bit after and it's already light outside. Get your butt outside as fast as you possibly can. Ideally, you want to spend as much time as you can. Now, realistically, I know we've got lives. So as a kind of minimum effective dose, uh, five minutes would go a hell of a long way in terms of helping you with numerous um, benefits here. This idea that a good night of sleep starts with what you do in the morning is very profound and has been very helpful for me to think about because when we get that appropriate light in the morning from natural light, not just screens, I always say, you know, the cheesy line, sunlight before screen light, is always key. Again, if you're up before the sun, then you do want some bright light. You might want to consider a light box, for example, these kind of artist drawing light boxes that you can use in the office. And then when the sun comes up, you get your butt outside as fast as you can and as close ideally to sunrise as possible because light is information, right? We talk about diet a lot, but we don't focus so much on our light diets. For me personally, I focus an awful lot on my light diet, which means I want to get less junk artificial light and I want to get as much natural light as I possibly can at the appropriate times. So in this morning routine piece, it's obviously very important, but I'm also then thinking about that throughout the day. How much blue light am I staring at from this screen? How much do I need to protect myself from that by using things like Flux or Iris software to dim those blue lights in the evenings in particular to not provide that mismatch between it's nighttime and I should be tired, but I'm blasting myself on my 50-inch plasma LCD Netflix and chill, and I'm just basking in blue light, right? So this light diet piece is, is important, and it's, and it's really helpful. It's helpful for insulin sensitivity and mitochondrial function, but focusing back in again on the morning routine, it's helpful for that good night of sleep and for waking you up simultaneously. So you get the appropriate light at the appropriate time, in the appropriate forms, in your eyes and on your skin by generally looking in the direction of the sun probably not advisable to stir directly at the sun. That's not what we're saying to do. But if the sun is kind of over here, I'm looking somewhere over there instead of being completely in, in opposition to it because now it can hit my skin because I have photoreceptors on my skin and I have retinal ganglial cells in my eyes. So as much skin as possible, if you, if you live in a place where you can get out and it's warm enough and you can be shirtless or at least have your arms and bonus points always for grounding with this, like grounding if you have a little lawn or some grass that you can touch through too and really connect to the earth, this is how we can kind of maximize these benefits. But that appropriate dose of sunlight, natural light, in the morning will set your clocks, these circadian clocks that every cell in the body has to roughly 
initiate the sleep processes around about 16 hours later. And if you do the maths on that, you reverse engineer what time I'm looking at the sun and then do the 16 hours, you'll see that that's going to be a natural bedtime, ideally, that you want to get to sleep. And this is why a good night of sleep starts with what you do in the morning. I'm getting the right light at the right time. I'm signaling my body, A, to wake up and I'm normalizing, I'm naturalizing the cortisol spike. The reason we wake up, if you've been routined enough for a long time where you kind of don't need an alarm to wake up, you just kind of set it as a just in case, but you see that you kind of wake up right around that five minutes before, it's because you've entrained this cortisol rhythm and your cortisol starts to rise to wake you up. And that rises, uh, that raises your core temperature. And as you get warmer, that pulls you out of sleep. Now, if you, if you don't then fully naturally kind of initiate the processes that can have that be the most natural and authentic um, spike that it's supposed to be, and you jack it up with just artificial lights now, you skip the sunlight piece and you just do the screen lights and then you go immediately for the coffee and then you blast yourself with a hot shower and then you immediately jump in the car and then you immediately run to work and everything's very reactive and chaotic, you will mess up that cortisol spike. You, you, you will not have it be as um, useful and beneficial. Cortisol sometimes gets painted with a broad brush of being always a bad thing because it is a stress hormone, but it's also a very uniquely beneficial thing at the appropriate doses at the appropriate time, which is morning and using it uh, as a performance enhancer to really clear out again that adenosine tap, the, the melatonin tap, the grogginess of sleep. So light is very, very important. The caveat that I said about, you know, waking up before the sun, just want to touch on that again. And here we could get into all kinds of, uh, you know, adjunct things like shift work. I'm very grateful for people that do shift work because ultimately our country couldn't run without them. However, there's a, there's a cost to that too, right? You're basically becoming a nocturnal creature. You're living in direct opposition to these rhythms that I'm saying are very, very important. So that's very difficult. So you'll have to take this advice with a grain of salt and try to match it onto your life as much as you possibly can. And when you can to seek this light at the appropriate times and not disrupt your sleep patterns that are necessary for you to function at your job. But if you, let's say the sun rises at 6 a.m. and let's say you start work at 5 a.m. and you've got an hour before the sunlight, like I said, you know, get get the appropriate light above you, get the, get the light box if you can, or a red light therapy device could be really cool to have. And then as soon as that sun is up, find a way to get outside and, and get your five minutes in the sun and in the eyes. So that's kind of the light piece. It's really helpful for entraining your circadian clock, and it's really helpful for setting you up for a good night of sleep. Now, Sunrise Club, I said I would touch on this again, is uh, has a lot to do with that. It, it's it started a lot as this physiological habit that I knew that I could build that was going to help me sleep wonderfully and feel better. Because if we have, you know, a, a few of the key levers that we pull on to really radically transform our health, like diet, sleep is right up there with it. You know, if diet is king, sleep is queen. It, it's that powerful. And some people would even argue that sleep could be king and diet could be queen. Like it's it's really important. If you could kind of catch all the benefits from sleep and somehow sell it in a pill, it would essentially be a miracle drug or a performance enhancing drug that would be banned from sports immediately because it could boost testosterone and libido and recovery and all of this stuff. So we need to be thinking about sleep and a lot of that starts with what we do in the morning. So light is your friend. One more point, people always ask me this, is you say sun a lot and, and I'm not conflating the two though because remember, even if it's very cloudy and it's very dull and even if it's raining, the sun is still there. You just can't see it. But even on a very cloudy day, 
you are still going to experience more photons of light coming through those clouds than you could from any amount of screens or even the light boxes. So yes, still do this even if it's cloudy, even if it's kind of sucky outside, even if it's a little bit wet. And this is where you can kind of start to habit stack this stuff now. Like you can take your water outside with you as you do the morning light practice. And then we can start now talking about and moving into the movement and stillness piece, okay? So movement here doesn't necessarily mean that you have to wreck yourself, go do like a crazy CrossFit workout or your big lift. It doesn't have to mean that, it can mean that. But what I'm referring to as a minimum effective dose of movement here is one of these other behaviors that helps, once again, to remove the fuzz or grogginess of excess adenosine that is still in the brain when you wake up. So if you wake up, like I wake up really quite fresh. I'm kind of ready to go. And I think that has a lot to do with the quality of my sleep. But some people wake up and they feel really groggy. One of the best things that you can do to shake that off is some light movement. Not a crazy workout, but something like some ur squats something like some burpees if you're feeling really fancy, something like some push-ups, or even just a walk. Now, if you think about the walk, you could chug your water, start the walk, get outside, and now you've kind of habit-stacked these things all together. And your walk doesn't need to be 10,000 steps. It could literally be a five-minute walk, uh, you know, one lap around your block or whatever it is. But movement will turn off that adenosine um, leak, that tap, if you will, and it will help you to wake up and it will naturalize that cortisol spike again. Now, you can also take advantage of that rise in cortisol and do your workout of the day if this is appropriate for you. I do this. I, I train four times a week, CrossFit style workouts, and I do them in the morning at the 6 a.m. class. So it is very aggressive and it is very early, but it doesn't necessarily need to be there. What it can do there is serve as a very powerful way to wake you up. And there's more of a lifestyle aspect to that too, that you kind of to quote Mark Twain, eat the frog in the morning. The idea there is if you had to eat a frog every day, then you should do the hard thing first because otherwise you are worried about eating that bloody frog all day long and the longer you delay it, the harder it gets and you're just thinking about it and thinking about it. So if your frog is the hard workout where you want to go and kind of get after it and push yourself physically, then doing it in the morning has the benefits that you can kind of hack some of these systems that are going on. You maybe get in some unique benefits from fasted cardio because you're probably not working out at 6 a.m. with a bit belly full of food and also, um, you know, utilizing some of this natural cortisol spike and after that you will be feeling very alive and awake. So the movement can be your big lift for the day or your long walk, but it, if anything else, just keep it minimum effective dose and keep it as simple as 10 push-ups and 10 squats. That's it. That's literally all you need to do because that little level of movement will give you a nice little hit of dopamine will give you a nice little hit of endorphins and it will just kind of shake away the fogginess. And it's better, again, than going immediately for the coffee because we can get to the coffee if that's in your routine still and that's that's serving you, we can get to all of this, but let's front load it with these good behaviors first. So now we've got our movement piece taken care of. And last but certainly not least, maybe the most important because we do the least of this is the stillness piece. If movement is life, stillness is the key that kind of unlocks your intentionality in life, your inner worlds, right? In a world that wants to pull you outward in terms of a lot of distraction or things to do. This is the kind of classic flavor of our mornings, right? Alarm goes off and immediately brain goes, what's all the stuff I need to do today? Immediately into problem solving mode. Do, 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 do. Go, 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 go. And go as fast as I can. 
when we only do, we forget that we are human beings, right? not human doings. We need to try and remember that with something that's a little more intentional and something that's a little more stillness-based. So we can set the tone for the day because really we are creatures of habit and how we start the day will dictate how we come into the day. And if you start from that very frantic go, go, go energy, you are likely setting the tone that the rest of your day will be like that. But what if you started the day with this five minutes or 10 minutes to be introspective, to go inwards, to check in with the inner textures of your mind. How am my body feeling today? How is my mind feeling today? What is stressing me out right now? And can I be with this? Now, it doesn't have to be a crazy long meditation, although it can be. There's a beautiful stillness and something very special about the morning before the buzz of the world is taken over, before the kids are up, before the stresses of life have had a chance to really sink their teeth into you. Well, there's just something about it. There's something about the morning where you can connect with your purpose, your muse, your, your higher self, if you will. It seems to me much easier to connect with those parts of ourselves before the day has got a hold of me and I have all of that energetic residue of the tasks left unfinished or the little argument or the guy that cut me off on the way to work or whatever it was. So the stillness doesn't necessarily need to be this grandiose, like sit down, light a candle in lotus posture and ohm. If that's your flavor, that's your flavor. I meditate every day personally for 15 minutes. I have done so for five years and it's profoundly impactful on my life. I, I, it's one of my core hinging points because I know it sets me up to be the best version of myself that I can be. However, that stillness again can also be combined with movement. I know these seem counter, but what if the movement is just a walk? And what if on that walk you leave your phone behind and you don't check your emails and you don't check your text and you turn that walk into a mindful exploration of your environment. You walk around your cul-de-sac that you live in and you try to see it like you've never seen it before. You really pay attention to, oh, never noticed they had a red door. And oh, listen to those birds. And mm, what does it feel like to really like feel my feet on the ground? Bonus points, be the weirdo in the neighborhood walking around barefoot. Feel your feet connecting, feel the palm, uh, the, the heel strike and then the midfoot strike and then the rolling off the toes. Turn it into a walking meditation, breathe. And this is how you can, again, habit stack. Now we're outside, now we're getting the sun. We hopefully smashed a good old bit of water before we went outside. Now we're doing it all together. And we can do all of that within 10 minutes. And again, the meditation piece could come in here. The journaling could come in here. Setting some intentions for the day could come in here. Writing down some goals. Who do I want to be today? What do I want to do today? We can even do a bit of a introspective practice on yesterday. What, what was a highlight from yesterday? What could I have done better? How am I gonna be 1% better than I was yesterday? I, I maybe I've talked about this three-day cycle before that I try to live in, but if it's a good reminder either way, I'm, I'm kind of always operating in yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And what I mean by that is I'm looking to yesterday to say, how can I be 1% better than that version of me yesterday? Not how can I be a totally transformed person every day, 1% better. So if I had all of these things where I was like an A, an A plus, I'm, that's not where I'm looking at, but maybe I could communicate my needs a little bit more in relationship or something like that. So just 1% better than I was yesterday. Now that brings me to today. What can I do today to set up tomorrow's self for the most success? So there's the three-day cycle. Yesterday informs me how I can be 1% better. Today is what I'm in control of. I only ever have now. What am I gonna do with now so that my tomorrow is looking back and saying, eh, Good job, man, we're doing this thing. And stillness is a key component in that. If I don't have stillness, 
and I constantly lose myself in the busyness of life, then I lose what's really important to me, or I lose this opportunity to check in, to ground, and to be present with the day. And I'm just going to do a little breath work with you. I'm just going to teach you something really simple right now. Um, I'll teach you two, because breath work is... Um, is very powerful for becoming your anchor back to the present moment. And the present moment is the only moment that we ever have. The, the issue is that most people don't live in the present moment. They're constantly ruminating about something that has already happened. They're replaying it in the mind, the feeling, the guilt, and the shame, or whatever it is. Or they're anxious about something that has yet to happen because, oh, I've got to give a presentation at work today, or that, that deadline is due on Friday. And in all of that, looking to the past and worrying about the future, we forget to ever be here and now. The only moment that ever is, everything that ever happened to you, everything that will ever happen to you, happens to you in the now. And tomorrow never comes, because when tomorrow comes, it's now. Next week is now. Everything that you experience is now. And it's a shame to me that so many people don't experience the now, because the, the mind is somewhere else. The, the, the body is physically present, but the mind is ahead, or the mind is in the past. So... The reason that having a few mindful breaths can be really helpful here is because it's your anchor back to the now. Because if you fundamentally, truly only focus on the breath, you, you fundamentally, truly only come into the here and now. You can't simultaneously think about the breath and count the breath and worrying uh, about what your boss is going to tell you when you get into work. It's, it's physi physiologically impossible or mentally impossible to hold two thoughts at the same time. We very quickly task switch between them. So my personal favorite is the 2x breath. And what that means is I double the exhale in comparison to my inhale. So if I inhale for two, I exhale for four. And the reason I'm focusing on the exhale is if we think about the breath really quickly, the inhale is the breath of the sympathetic nervous system, the go, 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 the fear, right? That's why when I'm scared, I, when I hold my breath. Whereas if I observe a beautiful scene or I come home, I go, it's all exhale. The exhale is the breath of the parasympathetic nervous system. So the inhale is like the accelerator pedal. Whoa, go, go, go. And everybody's breathing. <laughs> that's exaggerated, but that's how people are breathing. It's very chesty. It's not deep. It's mouthy a lot of the time. Whereas what we really want to be doing is having more of this conscious... If you're like me, you might accidentally find yourself whistling a lot through the day or humming a lot. That's what we're trying to do. We're self-soothing our nervous system because... It's long exhale. So the 2x breath, if it's two seconds in, and it's four seconds out. So you just do a few of those with me as you're listening. Two seconds in, four seconds out. And do a few more of those. And there's nothing necessarily magical about the two and four number. You could do four in and you could do eight out. You could even stretch this to six seconds in and 12 seconds out. The key here is lengthening and riding that exhale because that exhale signals through the vagus nerve, it's okay, calm down. And simultaneously as you're doing that, I'm focusing solely on the breathing and counting. You just saw when you were doing that, you weren't thinking about whatever is now coming back into your consciousness. Oh my God, I got my and all that crazy comes back. So when that crazy comes back, there's your invitation. That's your back pocket breath. I do this everywhere. I do it in the line at the store. I do it when I'm driving the car. I do it when I'm getting ready to hit record on the podcast. I just close down for a minute. I do a couple of those 2x breaths and I just... 
And I'm constantly in training this idea in my mind that when I do that, I'm signaling everything's good. Everything is safe. So I said I'd share two because I just like to have options. The second one is box breathing. Very, very simple. But it's the uh, classically done as a four-second inhale into a four-second hold into a four-second exhale into a four-second hold. And the reason it's called box breathing is a lot of people will do this with their eyes closed and they'll visualize the box of the inhales and the holes. So let's do one of those together just so you know what you're doing. So inhale for four. Hold for four. Exhale for four. And hold empty lungs for four. Voila. You can do breath work now. So you've got 2x breath and you've got box breathing. These can be implemented as part of your stillness practice. So there we go. If you can hit those four pillars, and I think every person can hit those four pillars in as little as 10 minutes, and you can stretch this out to be as long as you want. If you have the wonderful space in your day, or you want to get up at 5 a.m. and you want to stretch this out to be an hour, you are going to see a lot of return on your investment for this time. And that's a good way to frame it. A lot of people, when I tell them about this stuff or meditating a little bit more, they always say, I don't have the time. When somebody tells me they don't have the time to meditate for 10 minutes, I say, great, well, you need to meditate for two hours a day because it's highlighting a problem. They, they see the, the cost of that. They don't see what they get back from it. If you can give me 10 minutes to construct and intentionally design your morning, yes, you need to pay with your time those 10 minutes, but what you get back for that investment in terms of the hours of saved productivity and presence and less stress and anxiety now try telling me you don't have time to do that you have the time it's just not a priority right now if we can make this a priority you are prioritizing yourself your behaviors your healthy habits and that ties everything in this framework together all the way through achieving your why because that version of you that starts the morning intentionally that has the stillness, that has the hydration, that has the light, that has the movement and can build that in their own unique little way is a better version of you. There's no doubt about it in my mind. So, so if you win the morning, you will win the day. And if you don't win the day, at least you won the morning. And that's what life is all about. The game of momentum, my friends. So hopefully there's something in there that you can use Get creative with it. If there's other things in there that I didn't mention, remember, this isn't a prescription. These are just suggestions. You can weave in your own stuff. You might start to apply this and you might realize that, yeah, I like three of those steps, but the fourth one I'm going to leave out and that's okay too. Uh, again, done is better than perfect. And the difference between nothing and just one of these things is infinite. That's the biggest difference you can possibly make. It's not optimizing every little nook and cranny. It's getting started. So here's the little challenge for you to... Get to bed maybe a little bit earlier. Protect that evening. Think about your evening routines. Maybe there's a future podcast episode in that as well there to optimize. But just think about those basics. Your light diet again. Getting to bed on time. Cold, dark room. EMF-free environment for bonus points. And get up earlier so you can intentionally carve out a little bit more time. If that means you've only got to set your alarm 20 minutes earlier than you usually do so you can get all of this done, that's a good win in my book. All right? Cool, cool, cool. So with all that done, it's time to get into some callers. Shall we do that? Okay. Who have we got today? We have Cassandra from Pennsylvania on the line. Hello, Cassandra. Are you with us? What can we help you with Hello, today? Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm very well. How are you? Um, first of all, good. Thanks for that. That was excellent, by the way. Awesome. Um, and thanks for taking my call. 
Um, prior to getting recent blood, blood work done, I had been following an animal-based diet for many months. Mm-hmm. But then <clears throat> when I got my results back, I was alarmed by my cholesterol numbers, mm-hmm. especially my LPA result, which was high. So um, should I be concerned eating an animal-based diet and are there extra precautions I should take because of this finding? And does pursuing insulin sensitivity ultimately protect me from having a cardiovascular event? Cool. Thank you for that question, Cassandra, and good job. It sounds like you're already mm-hmm. looking for solutions, and yeah, you definitely got the elephant in the room there with insulin resistance, so we'll unpack that a little bit. Did you say in that question, sorry, I may have missed it, how long you've been doing this for now? Is it? Um, I have been on every diet known to man, right. and I find that I love the animal-based diet, and I think mm-hmm. I've probably been doing it mostly for like a year, um, off and on. I think when I got my blood work, I, I got very nervous Mm -hmm. and I stopped the animal based diet and I started to do the Mediterranean. Then Mm -hmm. I started to look at the Japanese diet. Mm -hmm. And then I always found myself going back to, I really, really miss the animal based diet. So I have gone full force into it because I just, feel like that's the only one that gives me the most energy Mm. and it helps with my blood pressure but it's just the fact that I have hypercholesteremia in Uh like it's a genetic form yeah I'm just really concerned am I actually harming myself at rather than benefiting myself yeah I I I totally get that and I would say here there's a couple of things that you brought up there that's so important is that there's a reason that your mind and your body wants to come back to animal-based, which is because it feels really good Mm -hmm. and it feels like it's giving you energy and it's helping with these other areas. So we're definitely going to talk about this blood work stuff, but you know, you mentioned blood pressure too, which is a big piece in this insulin resistance and hypertension story. But there's a, there's a very powerful signal to me here, at least that you are drawn back to this. And I'm just curious before we look and address the specific concerns about LP little a and the blood work, what are the results that you have experienced? You said it gives you energy. Have you noticed anything else? Has it been helpful with your body composition goals? Anything else there? I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. So I definitely surprisingly lose weight on this diet. I maintain a very healthy weight on the diet. It gives me energy. I'm a mother of three young kids. Mm-hmm. So Um, And I do, unfortunately, work night shifts every weekend. Mm. So it really helps to charge me. And I enjoy the diet. I love the cow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love the cow. I can't stay away from the cow. Um, (laughs) I love fruit. I just feel like it just, you know, it helps with the fact that I'm no longer eating processed sugar, that I can actually eat fruit. It really helps in that sense as well. Yeah. Um, I love the community. I love everything you stand for. I mean, just the little things that you said in your talk this morning, just the movement, mm-hmm. the, the exposure to sunlight. I love, it's not just a diet, it's mm-hmm. the lifestyle that I love. And I, I follow Heart and Soil. I follow Paul Saladino. Now I'm going to follow Radical Health yeah. <laughs> Radio. You know, I just, I enjoy the community 
and I find that it works best for me. My composition is mm-hmm. great. I'm working on it. I'm exercising. I'm exposing myself to light. Um, my other lab work looked okay. Yeah. And nothing was alarming. The only thing that was just kind of red flag was like the cholesterol numbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I heard that the cholesterol really doesn't matter as much. Mm-hmm. But then when you put in the genetic one, I was like, but is is my body able to clear out as much as someone else who doesn't have yeah. that genetic portion? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. I love, I love your train of thought here and just celebrating you for all of those benefits too. Um, we love this community too. And that's why we're so passionate about spreading this message. And I think it's tricky sometimes in the it's not, you know, it's a quantified self movement almost. If we go, if we go looking for problems, we we can find them, you know. And everything that you said there about feeling good, looking good, healthier body composition, energy, those are all huge green flags. We go looking and we find a red flag, and it can kind of scare us a little bit, and rightly so, you know. There's a lot of fear around this, and there's definitely it's definitely something we need to pay attention to. But I want to also just remind you, Cassandra, not to throw all the baby out with the bathwater because what you're feeling and experiencing is is its own results. And, and it's very, very powerful. So let's let's look at this because you mentioned familial hypercholesterolemia. That's always a mouthful. And uh, this high LPA number. So what the, the, the FH and the LPA is has a in common is a very large genetic component. It seems to be in uh, hereditary and the genetics of it seem to be either from my understanding, and I want to preface this with I am not a cardiologist. I, I am not a doctor. I'm referring information that I've heard from people I respect in this field. And actually, one of the guys that's really clued up on this is Michael Twyman. And he was actually on Paul Saladino's podcast. So you could check that out on YouTube because they, they dive pretty good into this one. But kind of um, refer you over there and and giving you my rudimentary understanding of this is it's largely genetic and in that genetic lpa it's kind of there's been a mutation on on that cholesterol bow it's almost turned itself into a a corkscrew and you're either going to have a low number that doesn't really move uh, regardless of diet or you're going to have a high number that doesn't really move regardless of diet either in any kind of significant way and there's certain supplements like there's niacin that can be used around this that can maybe lower it 10 percent but like realistically speaking there seems to be a genetic ceiling on what you can actually do to address this number so that raises the point of if we can't do anything and that means i don't know potentially maybe in the future there's a medication and hopefully that medication is safe and that's a whole nother topic for discussion but let's say that the best understanding of this right now which is a very confusing topic and is very nuanced and depends who you listen to how much of a concern they will tell you this is but if we can't do much to actually affect this number then we have to look at the kind of the uh the fuel what would be inside of these ldl boats if they're being carried around more commonly and the body's unable to clear them because we could potentially have a lot of kindling building up there for for the fire right so that would then all come back down to these base principles of well that story has to do almost entirely with inflammation and these oxidized LDL particles. And now we're into the seed oil story and this oxidative stress and the insulin resistant story. So you already mentioned the insulin resistant story that this seems to be uh, focal to these uh, cholesterol conversations, regardless of whether we're talking normal cholesterol or, or very high, like familial levels of hypercholesterolemia. 
But I think if those LPA boats um, are, are carrying a lot of oxidized material or oxidizable material, then yeah, it's it's potentially a risk factor. But when we talk in the context of an animal-based diet, I mean, the, the whole diet is structured to mitigate that risk to the best way that we know how, which is to eat the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, which just so happen to be animal products, which also happen to be high in saturated fat and cholesterol. And that's where there's a, a lot of confusion arises here. But also understanding that dietary intake of cholesterol doesn't necessarily drive lipid levels of cholesterol because it seems to be an internally mediated process from the liver producing it to the brain producing it. And if you're eating more of it, um, you know, the dietary form doesn't seem to be the thing that's going to hugely swing it. What does seem to be the thing that hugely swings at least the ratios and the quality of our cholesterol numbers are things like insulin resistance. And he said blood pressure improved, which is a marker for insulin resistance, at least as I see it, and stress. You know, it's classically called hypertension, so high tension, stress. Um, that's physiological with blood pressure, but also probably mental. And as you're healing, a healthy body is the vehicle for a healthy mind, and so on and so forth. And you've got these other habits building. So what you could do here is kind of take peace of mind or solace, at least, that what you're doing with an animal-based diet, and if I was in your position, not doctor's advice again, but I would be doing an animal-based diet despite this finding. And I wouldn't necessarily be changing anything. I would still be eating the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. I would be really addressing what I think would be the biggest driver of uh, some kind of complication here, which would be insulin resistance. I would be very, very careful about exposure to seed oils. And I would probably, you know, be a, a little more rigid on that and, and healthy, choosing healthy animal fats. And if the plant fats are in the diet, they're, they're going to be high quality olive oil or high quality avocado oil and coconut oil and that kind of stuff. And then potentially looking at other numbers, which you said were good. And, and that's very important because I would be looking at things like fasting insulin, um, CRP. I would be doing cortisol stress tests because now what I'd be looking for personally is markers of stress and inflammation because I think that's the biggest red flag in this story with LPA that's elevated right now. Because again, I'm not sure based on the experts that I've listened to how much you can actually affect that number. But what you can do is affect the internal qualities of the body that those elevated boats are going to live within. So having the other blood work look okay and nothing other red flag is a good little, okay, that makes me feel good. And I hope that makes you feel good too. And you could do other advanced testing. You could do the the CAC, right? The calcium artery scan kind of test to look if there's any calcified plaque and buildup. You could continue to do extra testing if that would put your mind at ease. And sometimes I'm sure, sure that would because you can kind of go looking for the best bits of available data that we have, you know, with your other blood work. And again, looking more so for indicators of metabolic dysfunction or stress that it ha and how it's manifesting internally. Because I think from my understanding that in the absence of insulin resistance, in the absence of a body that's just laden with poofers and oxidative stress, and in the absence of a body and mind that is riddled with stress, both physiologically and psychologically, that this becomes a markedly less of a concern. So how does that how does that sound? Is that helpful or, you know, does it give you some some new threads to investigate and pull on? That gives me so much peace of mind. <laughs> Thank you for explaining it so well. Yeah, you're very welcome. And what I, you know, I think with a lot of this stuff as well, the you know the the, the micronutrients are a big key just to make sure the engines are running well, the systems are running well. So I know it sounds like you're a fan of of, of what we're doing here in Heart and Soil. Do you take any organs right now in the diet, fresh or desiccated? 
I do the vitamins, I mean, not the desiccated ones that you guys provide. I do the beef and liver one. Okay, perfect. And then I do the warrior one. Okay, perfect. I love the warrior one. All right. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's re-up you with a free bottle of warrior as well for being a warrior, fighting for truth and fighting for health. Oh, and okay. thanks for calling in, Cassandra. Stay, stay connected with us as we keep growing and spreading this message and keep being a living example. And check out, yeah, check out the Michael Twyman on Paul's podcast. And we'll try and link that in the show notes too, because that, that'll be uh, helpful, I think. Thank you very much, Cassandra. Um, cool. Do we have Manus on the line? All right, we lost our second caller, unfortunately. We'll get you next time, Manus. We'll see you soon. So that would be it for the show today, fam. I hope you have a little more structure on how to structure your morning routines, a little less of the, you know, alarm goes off, wipe the bags and the, you know, the crust from your eyes, go to the coffee and get about your day and maybe just make a little more intentional efforts to pause, hydrate, especially before you caffeinate, get outside, get that natural light, get a bit of movement, get a bit of stillness. If you hit those four pillars, I, I guarantee you're going to feel better for them. So I hope that was helpful for you. Thank you, as always, for being involved in the show. If this was helpful for you and you know somebody that needs this information, share it with them. Please share it with them. We're trying to grow this message. We're trying to spread. We're trying to help people get healthier. And it would mean the world to us if you like, you comment, you subscribe, you share with a friend that you know is a hot mess in the morning so we can fix it up a little bit. All right. So thank you for being here. We will see you next Wednesday. As always, stay radical, friends. Peace. All right, friends. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.